So let me ask you, um, what is the most important thing a person can do every single day? What's the most important thing? What, what would your answer be? Prayer. Anybody else? Prayer. Ah, oh, it is early service. But I will tell you that that um, that question gets asked, and there's probably many varying answers. Some of you probably answering in your head, and we probably had multiple answers. Um, Jesus answered that for us in the passage we're going to look at, but just to set the stage before we jump into it, when you come to Mark chapter 12, in the chronology of Jesus' life, um, we're now at the last week, by the time we get to this chapter, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's Wednesday in the final week of his earthly life, and he's going to be crucified on Friday. So that gives you kind of the, the time and place of where uh, our narrative really uh, begins today. And if you remember on Tuesday of that week, he had gone into the temple. He saw money changers. Uh, they were stealing people's money, an exorbitant exchange rate for selling sacrificial animals, sometimes ten times the price, the going rate for those animals. And so they're cheating the people. And Jesus cracked the whip and overturned the tables and, and drove the animals out. And he said, um, I, I said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. I know growing up when an evangelist came or, or someone and was selling their CDs in the foyer, I always had this thought, uh, are we, uh, would Jesus come in here and crack the whip? No, no, not unless he's selling those CDs for, uh, you know, a thousand bucks maybe, you know, trying to, uh, uh, trying to overprice them. But, uh, but this is what he does. And so he cleanses the temple on, Wednesday, uh, uh, on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, uh, this is something... Uh, to say about his bravery because he is going back into the temple courts and he is teaching. He's going back where he just kicked people's tails and took names, right? Uh, he already had their names before he kicked their tails, but he's going back and he's going to, um, uh, and so he's going back in the temple and he's teaching. And as he does, religious leaders, they hate him, so they try several different ways to trap him. So this is literally going on in the church service of the day, Right? You've got the pastor and pastoral staff, and Jesus has hacked them off, and, and they hate him. And so they're trying to figure out a way to trap him. And so um, they either want to discredit him, like as when we were in the, uh, talking about Paul, and Paul being discredited by the false teachers. They want to either discredit him in front of the crowds to where they won't follow him anymore or, or give him any credit for what he says, or get him in trouble with the Roman government. So they'll either imprison him or kill him. And so... They come to him in chapter 11 and they start to question him about his authority. You know, where did you get authority to do what you're doing, Jesus, uh, when you cleanse a temple? Uh, to talk to you like, what, why do you, how can you talk to people like you talk to them? Where's your authority? Who said you could do it? And who even said you can come to the temple and teach? Now, it's a good measure that we don't just allow anybody who walks off the street that we don't know, comes in and says, I'm a prophet or I'm an evangelist or a a teacher, and just hand the pulpit over to them. You know, Paul wouldn't suggest that because he understands what it's like when false teachers creep in. So anyway, there's, so you get these questioning, and he answers them and confounds them with his answer, and then another group of religious leaders, they come in and they talk to him about taxes, like should we pay taxes or not? Don't you love the people in church who always want to make it about a political thing? We're trying to talk about Jesus. But this is a political thing for them because they are controlled by the Roman government and they, um, 
don't feel like their money should be going to them. It should go to the temple. And so they're talking about this and the temple tax. Should we pay the, the poll tax and the census tax? And so every single Jewish person had to pay a shekel for their temple tax. And should we pay that? And Jesus confounds them again with his answer on that. Then another group comes, the Sadducees. They are very sad, you see. And they come and ask him about the resurrection. And these are, are people who do not believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they ask him a question. They only believe, uh, they only believe in the first books of the Bible. So they ask him a question, try to trap them. But Jesus answers them, confounds them from their own books that they adhere to. So... And in that one answer, he actually solves a centuries-old debate. And this other religious leader comes, and this is a parallel passage that I'm going to look at real quick um, than the one we're reading in Mark. This is Matthew's account of the same event. And I love this passage, Matthew chapter 2. It, it, chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 35. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they, this was over the resurrection question, and so they huddled, and they were like, we, we tried to get him this way, and we didn't work, and we tried to get him that way, and it didn't work. And surely we, with uh, the knowledge we have, can come together and come up with some question that's going to trip Jesus up. And one of them, a lawyer, which that doesn't mean like lawyers today, which you guys are all like, well, that figures, lawyer. But no, in that day, this is actually an expert of the Jewish law, a lawyer, an actual expert of the Jewish law. So this would be like they had 70 elders or 70 on the Supreme Court, and this is one of these guys, very important and influential. So this guy, all he does all day is study the law. I mean, this is his job. He eats and breathes and sleeps the law, and so... Um, he must have been very good because the gospel writers don't often call these folks, uh, these scribes, in other words, experts of the law, but they do him. So this guy's one of the top of his game. And obviously he must have been picked. Say, so why don't you go ask Jesus' question? I doubt he'll trip you up. So now back to Mark's gospel, chapter 12, this parallel passage, and we see the question of one of these scribes. Um, and so what's a scribe? It's a person who would copy uh, the religious texts, uh, they, they were, um, had to be uh, very knowledgeable. They often would know by heart the word of God. And so they would just sit and honestly they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. So they're able to make written copies that would be used in synagogues and for teaching. And so they're writing as if they are also studying um, a thing called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is, is something uh, that is used uh, to explain the Jewish law. Um, I'm going to use my own analogy, kind of like maybe a concordance or a commentary to help explain what their text meant. And so this was an explanation by Jewish, uh, law by, uh, of Jewish law by rabbis, uh, interpretations of different texts. And so much like commentaries, you have different commentators. So this scribe, this expert, came up and he heard them disputing and heard some of the conversation of them trying to trip up Jesus and um, and so what? So he goes up and asks Jesus, "What is the most important commandment of all? What's the most important commandment of all?" And so in Mark chapter twelve, verses twenty-eight through thirty-four, 
he's not asking this because he really wants to know. In fact, in his position, he's probably answered this many times for other people because it's something that got asked a lot. And he's wanting to set Jesus up. Well, see, Jesus had already set himself up as, uh, as an authority figure with the Jewish people. So here is the confrontation. And so he wants to see if Jesus uh, will attack Moses' authority and will say something different than Moses did, which would lead them to discredit him. He's basically trying to say, oh yeah, which one, which one which should we obey the most of the Ten Commandments? And second, he's asking this because it's that question uh, what's the number one commandment? If a person can't obey all of them, what's the one you most really want to, to get right? And that's a common concern of the day. This is very much a cultural thing in the Jewish uh, belief because uh, it, it's a concern they have. And so the, what the rabbis and scribes had to become of that time over centuries, they were memorizing the Old Testament and they were studying the law and they get so intense about it and, and coming up with different interpretations of the law, and they had arrived at the fact that in the Ten Commandments, which theologians called the Decalogue, there are 613 individual letters in, the, in Hebrew in that. So they decide, we're going to come up with a law for all 613 letters. <laughs> so can you imagine? It's like taking um, the, the scripture, Jesus wept. And after uh, decades or, or centuries of people pouring over that, you've got now 613 different versions of every letter of the law from the Ten Commandments. So they, they, what they did is, for example, when it came to the Sabbath, which is keeping the Sabbath holy, which is one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. What they did then is they'd have these interpretations of that, and one might say, well, that means you can't walk more than half a mile on the Sabbath. You can go up to half a mile, but over half a mile now you've broken that commandment. And, and, or maybe another one. Well, you can't lift more than this amount of weight. If you lift more than this amount of weight on the Sabbath, another scripture talks about if your ear ox is in the ditch. You know, I use that. Somebody gave that to me to use on my house bill because there's one Sunday when it was the only Sunday we'd get, I don't know if it was the trusses or what it was, that we could get the guy out there, set him, and... Someone said, well, your ox is in the ditch, Pastor, so um, that's why we're going to do this work today. But, but some of them, uh, or maybe you can't take a bath on the Sabbath. I'm thankful in our church services, I think most of you probably have taken a bath this morning, right? Or all of you, hope. So that would be uh, uh, one example of what they do. And, and what they had was these 613 laws, and they had uh, light laws, which were considered somewhat optional. And then they had the heavy laws that were somewhat mandatory or completely mandatory. And in those 613, they had 238, which were, which, um, uh, were positive, and they had 365, basically one for every day of our year, even though they didn't go by that, um, that, were, that were negative commandments. So what happens is over time you come to the conclusion that, man, I can't do 613 laws, right? I mean, uh, we have trouble with not going 5 or 10 miles over the speed limit. Imagine if you knew that you would lose out with God if you break one of 613 laws. Or even if you just picked the 365 hard ones. So you're thinking, maybe I can do a few of them. 
And then you try that for a while and you realize I can't really even do a few of them. Maybe if I can just do one of them. And so this is a very popular cultural question for the Jews. Which one is the greatest one? Just tell me one. If I can just, if I can do one. It's kind of like when you're dieting. Now, now listen, if I can just give up one thing. I'll give up my sodas, right? So you get the sense that this is dominated in their thinking, in their Jewish thinking. And, and we also know Jesus has asked this same question on several other occasions. So it is very much uh, on their mind. So all of those that are listening around, they're going to be really listening now because Jesus has not been tripped up yet and he's been asked the infamous question, which one do we need to obey the most? So for example, in John chapter 6, verse 28, they asked him, what must we do, uh, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And we could take a little rabbit trail there and get into some of the um, parallels to this text on the oneness doctrine where some believe that there's not a trinity, it's just God, but we won't get into that. But the crowds come to him, they say, what must we do um, uh, to please God, basically? And remember when he's telling them the parable of the Good Samaritan in in uh, chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, so it's all along on the same, in the original language, along the same thinking of, of uh, just tell me, give me the easy, simple path. I mean, if I can't keep everything, all these commandments, then which one should I do? And remember the rich young ruler. Jesus didn't challenge him when he said, I've obeyed all the commandments since I was young. But then he told him to sell all his possessions. And we get into more of a why you do what you're doing for the Lord. And he walks away sad. And then Matthew 19, 16, uh, uh, when it says the rich man came up to Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He's asking the same question. So this religious leader is coming up, this lawyer, and he's asking Jesus, what do I need to do? And here's Jesus' answer. Let's look at it in verse 29 and 30. Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So where did Jesus come up with that? Was that just Jesus' original saying he just pulled? No, actually, he gets that from the book of Deuteronomy from Moses. So this is very interesting because he's challenging back again from Moses' teaching. And Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and just hold your place there, I want to talk about something uh, regarding this. Because when you go there, you see it, it's a portion of Scripture every Jew would have known. It's called the Shema. It's something which uh, the Shema means the hearing. Uh, Hear, O Israel. And this is something that a devout, a very good Jew would have recite. He would recite this um, uh, about twice a day if he was devout. And so it's the hearing. And, and so verse 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So Jesus quoted scripture that the Jews, and especially the scribes, would have known very well. 
Now I want you to look back in Mark, and I want to point out some things to you. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, and all your strength. First of all, I want you to notice what's said five times there. It's the word your. The word your is, uh, is said five times there, which makes it very, very significant to the passage. Your God. And it's your word. It's, it's not plural like we say you all in Arkansas. He's not saying you all, as in you all, New Song Church, needs to love God. You all, the church worldwide, needs to love God. No, it's very personal. It's very individual. It's you. You personally. Not the person sitting next to you. Not your spouse. Not you as a family, but you. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your uh, mind, your soul, your strength. It's very interior. And so uh, this, this is a call to direct to every individual. So it's about us, you as an individual. So he's asking basically where are you at? He's calling each person. Second, I want you to notice that four times uses the word all, which makes it very significant. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. It's not part, it's not partial, it's all. You, you can't divide up yourself and give God part and be obeying this. It's like last week when we learned about serving, that we're all in. That, that it has to be all of you, all your resources, everything you have, all of you. And anything less than that is less than God deserves and less than God is asking for. You're shortchanging God if it's less than all. So God's asking for absolute every ounce, every inch, every fiber of your being, everything you have to give, that's what God is asking. And you say, what are you looking at when you are talking about that? Well, let's look at this and kind of process through it. So heart, that's the core of our being. It, it's, the, the, um, it's the center of our affection. Um, that's the part of you that is eternal that God knows on a spiritual plane. That's your direct connection to the Lord. And then all of your heart. And there's the soul. The, um, so all of your heart. So then there's a the soul. The soul is the inner being. The desires. The emotions. The inner you. The one that thinks and has feelings. And that has hopes. And that creates goals and desires and ambitions. And all uh, that is directed towards God. When he says all. And then mind, your intellect, your thoughts, your will. You know, the scripture talks about arresting stray thoughts. Our mind is, is a battleground. Uh, the enemy is trying to capture and giving that all to God. And then um, also uh, your, your strength, your mind, and then your, so your strength, your physical body, your physical capacity, your physical energy. And so he wants all of it, all of it focused on him. And so it's not only your physical body, but the things you possess on all of, of, of that you're using uh, on this earth, it's a part of your all in the physical. So it becomes your superpower in the supernatural strength God gives you. Not so much physical strength, but spiritual. And so then <clears throat> it means what it means to love God, every part of you, every part of you continually serving him. So the real question is, what does it look like? If every person is wholeheartedly, with all their soul, their mind, uh, their body, their strength, 
they're, they're, everything they've got in them, what does that look like? Because invariably you ask people, do you love God? And they're like, oh yeah, I love God. I mean, it's a pretty easy question to answer, right, for those of us who call ourselves Christians. I, I love God. But see, the, the problem is when you look at some people's lives, you can't tell by the way they live. There has to be something outstanding in someone's life who says they love God to, to give proof in the pudding that they do love God. There has to be something from their lives, not just by works, but something from their spirit that says that person really loves God. And we can really ask ourselves, what is it people would see from us that would say they really love God? Jesus cuts to the chase on this, and Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, loving God has less to do with how you feel about them than how you live for him. And that messes with us in popular church culture today. You mean it's not just about how I feel about God? I thought that's all there was. That it was driven by how I feel about him. No, it's more about how you live for him. And if you say that you love him, then your life should be a reflection of that love. So how does this play out? And I think this is significant because this is the most important thing. Jesus says it is. Then how do you do that? How, what does that look like? Um, so if we go back to De- Deuteronomy again, I just want to quickly look at chapter 6, and I want to pull out something. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly. In other words, God desires to bless you. Now there's a lot of twisted um, things out here to do with this passage where people take it into just monetary gain. Everybody's meant to be wealthy, and that's not true. God's desire is that, that life would go good as it possibly could for you, that God wants to do good things for you, a good, good father that wouldn't give his uh, son or daughter a snake when they ask for a loaf of bread. Because the Bible says you are good and you do good, Lord, and the psalmist says in Psalm 119 um, that it, might, it, it says that he's, he's good and that he's wanting to care for us. So God wants to see your life get better, bigger. And so he's constantly searching to and fro, looking for ways to bless you. Uh, but that requires something of you. A relationship where you want to obey his commands. God says, I want to, you know, when, when someone says, I'm all in. I'm all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. God is saying, I want to help that person. I want to work in their life. That's a person I want to show how powerful I am to. You know, that's exactly when we talk about Job, that's exactly what happened. The devil wanted to test him and see Job fail. And, and when Job came through, God said, I just want to bless you. I want to give you everything plus what was taken from you. So when a person is loving God with their heart, loving God with all their soul, loving God with all their mind, their strength, what does that look like? You get the sense that that uh, I want to give you some things that I, I think comprises that, of what that looks like. First of all, I think a person that loves God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, there is a conviction, that, that they're driven by conviction. And it, and it says in Deuteronomy 6, 6, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. In other words, you're not going to live your life according to what's not on your heart. 
where your heart is there you'll go also. Because we literally live from the inside out. You know them by their fruit. It's an obvious thing. When when people live uh, according to God's word, it's evident to everyone around them. And so when you look at your life around you, it tells you what your life uh, is like inside. And so, uh, so what has to happen is when you love God, it becomes conviction. And you know in our lives, we all have a variety of preferences. You know, I prefer this, I prefer that. Some may think that as long as you've got some good worship, and uh, once in a while you do a, a Bible reading once in a while, well, they've, they've fulfilled their preference of how they serve God. Or maybe vice versa, or many different combinations of, but we have our own preferences. That's why we have denominations. That's why in the Bible Belt, you can't hardly de- go into a dead sprint before you run into a build- uh, church building. But that's where that comes from, is because we all have our preferences. And we know, um, you know, we'll say things like, I know all this is true. I believe the Word of God. And we think that that somehow creates a relationship because we believe it's true. You know, I believe this is the truth about my purpose. I believe this is the truth about my existence. I believe everything the Bible tells me about me. And when a person loves God wholeheartedly, there is a conviction about their life. And they just have it in their heart that I'm going to love God. But it's not automatic. There's a conviction that happens. And then there's, so, so there's this conviction, uh, uh, this conviction uh, these commandments I give you, uh, it says in Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And then secondly, convincingly, it, it says in, in 6 verse 7a, impress them on your children. Impress them on your children. It means this is supposed to perpetuate through your bloodline or through your adoption line. But it is supposed to perpetuate, and this is something... So listen, how do you convince your children to love God? They have to see it. They have to see you living it. And I think it's very interesting when he talks about loving God, he doesn't talk about other people outside the family. Because a lot of people convince people outside of their family that they're a believer or that they love God, but sometimes in their own family, people aren't convinced. That's the tougher road. It's very easy to convince people outside your home that you love God, but ask somebody's children. And of course, if you just ask them, do they love God? Well, they've been trained to teach we all love God. But you ask them key questions about how they're loving God to their children. And, and very quickly, you may find out whether they truly love God or not because it is uh, nearly impossible to fool anyone in your own household. You may think you have them bluffed, but deep in their hearts, they have their own thoughts about that. Because if the people on the outside think you do love God and the people on the inside don't think you love God, then something is really wrong. Because when you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind, your strength, the people closest to you, they know it. They know it. It it makes an impression on them. It's convincing. So, So you're living out that love for God in a relationship closest to you. Now, in the case where someone is, uh, uh, their spouse is an atheist, a devout atheist, and they are a devout believer, you know, and those, that how that plays out is they may not want to say, oh, they love God, but they'll rephrase it in a way like they are really crazy, like crazy about this whole religion thing. 
They're really over the top. I mean, that's all they want to think about and talk about. You see, it, it's just a different translation, but people around them know it. So you're, you're living out that love for God in relationship closest to you, and they can see it, they can hear it, they can watch it. It's obvious to them. And walking with God, loving God, knowing God, we love Him through that conviction, also through convincing, and then conversationally. And this is really where it supports, the third one supports the second, that conversationally uh, is also convincingly. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7b, talk about them when you sit at home. Talk about God's word. Talk about his goodness when you're sitting at home. In other words, uh, you're talking about the Bible and what you've learned from it and what you've heard about it and what you've listened on the podcast and what your friends, when you're doing Bible study, and all this stuff is, is turning in you and you can't help but talk about the things that you're learning of God's word and is spilling out of you. You're not just going on Facebook and pulling somebody else's blurb and, and, oh, that sounds good, and it has a scripture verse, I'll just forward that. No, it's internalized. You've got a relationship, and from that relationship, you're studying God's word you're learning more about him, and it spills out to others through your conversation. And here's the thing. If you say, I love God, then that means you would want to know God. And if you want to know God, the main source we have to know him is through his word. And so, therefore, you would have a hunger for his word. And Dave, that's exactly what Trey told me the other day. And he used those words. I really have a hunger for God's word, and I never had that before. I mean, it's a great thing to do when you walk out of this church building today and you go to lunch, whether at home or a restaurant, when, when the conversations, you can't help but turn to what God was speaking to you through his word. When you get cold and jaded to you've heard another message, you've just heard another scripture, and it's just another Sunday, and you go I'm on about, and you're like, okay, now kick off the rest of the week. You do that, you need to check your heart and say, am I really loving God? Like, I should love him. In that case, it gives me a little bit of... Um, uh, pass because uh, I may not be uh, a preacher like at Cross Church or anything like that. But if it's God's word and you can get a nugget of truth from His word, I've read Scripture, and if you take that and you're actually absorbing it and letting it change your life, you'll want to talk about it. So when a person loves God, they talk about God straight up. If you never talk about God, then you have to wonder, do you love God? Another way we can tell is continually. That's the fourth one, continually. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7c, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, so it's pretty all-inclusive. Whatever you're doing, when you're being lazy, when you've got the nachos and the TV show, you know, and that's what you're thinking about getting home, if you can shut that off for a minute, slide the nachos aside, and spend time meditating on God's word, and, and, and spend time on it continually, every time you're doing something. Again, I'll bring up, just to brag a little bit, he's not here this morning, but Dennis, he, he said a long time ago, he started reading his word, word every time he got physically hungry. Every time he went to eat, he'd read the word. And now when he has hunger pains, real ones for food, he feels the urge to read his Bible. His body and his mind has associated that hunger for his body to nourish his body actually is also hunger for the soul. And so he's made that connection and, it, and it's helped him to grow in his knowledge of the word. 
So, uh, you know, uh, you have this sense, this awareness of God, this, this desire for God, this focus for God. And, and listen, I want to remind you that it's not just for preachers. It's for everyone. It's for you. And this is God's heart for his people. Each one of his children. And then another one, um, after we talk about conversationally, after conviction and, and uh, being convincingly, is conspicuously. It goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Tie them as a symbol, as symbols around the hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so what Orthodox Jews would do, whether you're in Israel or you're somewhere in the United States where there's Orthodox Jews, they literally take a box, um, this little box, um, uh, I, I'm losing the term, I, I had it in my notes, but this little box, um, and they would tie this on their heads. And I've got some pictures up here if, we can, if you can see that, but it's very obvious. If you come across one that's done this, you're not going to miss it. They take a leather strap and they'll tie around their arm, that little box there, and it has a scripture in there, and that's to signify that everything I'm doing, I am focused on God's word. And so they walk around with this black box on their head. They don't care what people think because it's about them and God and showing their love and devotion to his word. And this is just the, another way for them to show that devotion. We don't have to do this to be closer to God, but it's an example. So you can't miss it. Uh, in other words, what Deuteronomy is saying, this passage is, everywhere you go, when someone watches you, it should be obvious who you love most. It should be blaringly obvious who you love most. When I walk with my wife and, and we still hold hands, I still get the fuzzy doodads that go up your arm when you we reach out and take, take uh, your spouse's hand. And, and you have that quick moment where you think about when you're dating and how, how you just were going crazy for that person. And, and God is a jealous God, and he wants much more than that. He wants much more than a, a, a once-in-a-while touch or a once-in-a-while hold of the hand. And so they're writing them on the door frames. They're doing these things. And make no mistake, this is saying, I am his, he is mine, and it's not one of those, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, but I'm not one of those real radical Christians. There's a YouTube video floating around where a former Navy SEAL who's a Christian got to hear him speak at the last James River Conference. He's in a mall, and the mall cop comes up because he's having a private conversation with someone about the Lord and witnessing. And the mall cop, who's wearing a cross, tells him he can't do that. There is private property, and he must leave, or he will criminally trespass him. And then they get talking, the mall cop actually says, I'm probably a better Christian than you, but not one of those radical kinds. He literally says that, and I'm thinking, good grief, what church does this guy go to? <laughs> what is his pastor teaching him? Identify, he is my life, he is my everything, I am all in, my heart, my soul, my mind, my spirit, everything. And it's a very daunting thing, because it carries over into the New Testament, and Jesus talks about this, if anyone wants to follow me, uh, he uses a hyperbole in this instance where it's basically an exaggerated statement to drive a point. And Jesus says that if you want to love me, then you've got to hate your family, your father and your mother. And so he uses this. And he's not literally saying you've got to hate your family. What he's saying is you've got to love me more than anyone else. That you need to love me so much that when anybody sees your love for me, they'll think every other relationship you have is filled with hate. 
It's going to be that much of a difference. That stark of a difference. That you're that taken with him. It's not that I don't love my parents or my family. That's not what he's wanting. Uh, That I don't love my kids. It's just no mistake about it. I love him more than anything. And here's the real interesting thing. Um, It's a whole life commitment. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. When it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And here's another thing. Here's the truth of it. You cannot love your family any more than when you love God more than them. It's a, it's a paradox. I love Jen more when I love God more than her. I love my kids more when I love God more than them. They love God more when they love him more than me. That's what Jesus is saying. So then Jesus goes on and the religious leader asks him in Mark 12, 31. And he asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, really, there isn't just one, there's two. Mark 12, 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandments greater than these. And that's a quote out of Leviticus 19. Unfortunately, in contemporary church culture, uh, that phrase has been misused to lead people down a horrible path of self-love. It's become more self-help. Well, you just can't love people with God's love until you learn to love yourself. You know, you've got to quit worrying about others until you love yourself enough. Because if you don't love yourself, you can't love others. And it's very easy to confuse a problem with self-esteem where maybe someone's even trying to hurt themselves because they have such lack of love for themselves. And, and this is what we're talking about. Because generally when someone is at the point of hurting themselves or low self-esteem, the problem is not about self-love, it's about self-focus. They become so focused on themselves, they can't see Christ reaching out to them. They can't see people of God reaching out to them. They can't see the blessings that God has put around them. They're so focused on themselves that the devil is feeding them lies about how horrible they are. And it's garbage. It's not the truth. It's unbiblical. And so Ephesians 5.29 says, After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Whoever hated their own body? Well, okay. Maybe, maybe there's a dislike for the form it's taken, but... But I mean, who combed your hair this morning? Men, don't look at your wife because that's really going to be embarrassing for you, okay? <laughs> who, who combed your hair this morning? Uh, whose body did you put clothes on? I, I mean, whose mouth did you stick food in? It's yours. You take care of your body as an act of love. We show enough love to ourselves just in the way we take care of ourselves. But I know people who don't feel good about themselves, Pastor, and, and here's the thing. And they don't feel good about themselves. As I said, it's because they have too much of a focus on themselves and not about what's going on around them. So, the issue isn't that people need to love themselves. The issue is that the self is in control. And you can't, you, you don't diagnose the illness. You can't, if you, if you don't diagnose the illness, you can't prescribe the cure. So if we don't really call it what it is, that it's really more of a self-focus, then we can't really issue the, di- uh, the prescribe the cure. 
So it's a balance. For example, if you need to meet your own needs, like you need a house, you need a car, or maybe you need rent. And so, you know, it's basically saying, and we're going we're gonna to come back to this here in a second, so don't, don't freak out, but it's basically saying, you know, as you meet your needs, do it for others like you would want it done for you. But it's not saying if they need a house, you need a house. Who could do that? Right? Who could do that? Even if you had the resources, really, who could do that? And here's the thing. We can't do these things. This is why no one can. This is why we need a Savior. This is why we need someone who can step in above us, beyond us, and, and, and help us. So uh, we don't have our own righteousness. As Romans um, 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Even if you had the resources, you couldn't do that. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why we need a Savior. And we come to Him and we say, say, God, I could never love you like you need to be loved. I could never love you like you deserve. And, and, and God looks down and says, you're 100% right, but I forgive you. And so he, he calls us righteous with His righteousness. And, and He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us um, love like we've never been able to love before. And that's why we can love people and hardly know them or not know them. That's why I could, I could walk in, and I've been very few times around Trey, who's sick right now, and I walk in, and my heart just broke for him, and I felt this love for this guy that I didn't know very well. Because Scripture talks about that, um, in fact, in the Old Testament, it talks about that when he puts the Holy Spirit in, in Ezekiel, God says, I will put a new heart in them, and they will love me. In other words, when you come to God, he puts a new heart in you, which gives you a new capacity to love like you never could on your own. And then Jesus takes it further, and the scribe said to him in verse 32, Mark chapter 12, verse 32 through 34. And the scribe said to him, You're, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, with all your strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've got to understand the amazing thing is they're sitting there, the, the smoke of the altar is going right then. You can probably smell the beef and all the, the lamb and all that stuff, you know, singeing on the fire. It's literally going right then when he's saying this. And, and Jesus, so, so here's this religious leader of Judaism who recognizing all the stuff that's going on over there and has to agree that there's nothing more important than what Jesus had just said to do and when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely and said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, he's saying you're not in the kingdom of God, but you're not far from it. Now, is he making some kind of little parody about the fact that he's in close proximity of Jesus? No. What he's saying is you can know what's right to do. You can know God's word and you can agree with it and still not enter heaven. You, you can believe that everything the Bible says is true. And you can agree with it. But if you're not all in and not loving him and serving him and, and having a relationship with him in the way that he wants you to, you can't, Jesus is saying, you're close, but you're not there. Because you finally at least agreed that this is truth. And so, I want you to notice something because I don't want anyone to make the same mistake this religious leader did. 
he's literally been told by the Son of God, all your knowledge, you're the top of your game, the best scribe, you put on good. Everyone outside your home believes that you love God with everything you have. But I'm telling you, you don't. And those were probably very hard words to take because if he had time to process and think about the way Jesus framed that up, that you're, you're close, but you're not there. It must have been crushing. Because you can agree with the words of Jesus and never be saved by Jesus. You can agree with all the gospel and never commit your life to the gospel. And Jesus is not looking for yes men and women. He's looking for people who will make a full commitment to him. And the most important thing, the most important thing, the supernatural thing, the superpower he's given us is love. The supernatural church is operating supernaturally because of the people of God manifesting the superpower of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this morning and for your word. Lord, from the time of worship, from the time we, before we even came, you, Lord, to this building, you're preparing our hearts. And Lord, while this message may not be, uh, be one that we like to hear because it causes us to question, am I loving God like I should? Lord, it has to be asked. Jesus, you may not have come here in the flesh during our lifetime, but you came into a church setting at that time. The sacrifice is just like the worship we offer. The offering, our devotion to the body and to you. Lord, church as usual was going on that day. And you stepped in and challenged. You challenged even the, the pastoral staff that day all that we're listening that maybe we can get caught up in knowing your word and liking what it says and even agreeing with it but, but by our actions within our own home those closest to us it's not blaringly obvious that we love you like you deserve Lord this isn't a message we know of condemnation because your word points us forward it's an opportunity Lord for the conviction to come and to, to change our path. So right now with uh, everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, I'm not asking for a hand response here. Or raise your hand. In your hearts, you raise your hand to the Lord. And if it's, if it's something that you need Him to help you with, He will help you. It's amazing to think that He will help us to love Him like He needs to be loved. But that's what His Word says. He'll give us a new heart. Paris, he'll give us the Holy Spirit to help us to love him in the way we should. And that while we can't be righteous on our own, his righteousness will shine through. So Jesus, right now, I pray in accordance with your word and with those who are believing right now that God, we would leave here changed. That God, if the, if the change is going to be a process that you have planned, that God, that we would not lose track uh, of this moment. That God, we would use it as a guidepost, Lord, from where you're taking us from here. And that, God, this would be a people who would have supernatural love. That, God, it would, it would literally seem as though there have been superpowers coming from each individual in this congregation as they step into the workplace, into their homes, their families. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love y'all. And uh, keep in mind, um, Wednesday, 630, we'll have service again. And then uh, 
also be inviting people for Easter. They're coming up uh, Sunday after next Easter. I believe there might be something with the children that is planned, and, and uh, it'll be a good time. And next Sunday, be prepared because historically we have a bigger attendance week before Easter than Easter. So uh, come, come early and get your seat. <laughs>